This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, Mr. Millen, it appears that we finally did it. Did what? We achieved our 1,000th program here. Oh, that. <laughs> well, it's quite an accomplishment, don't you think? Well, with 1,000 programs spread out over 23 years, we thought it would probably be a good thing today to take a look backward. So, I would note this all began in February of 2000 with a phone call phone call to Douglas Everett, physician, from lawyer friend Steve Alexander. Steve said he was sick of lawyering. He suggested an alternative, doing a radio show. He envisioned a theme of doctor pitted against lawyer, playing off the antagonisms of the two professions. This led to a second phone call, one to Edward McMillan, who had recently returned from India after doing audio recording there. He offered to lend his equipment and expertise should I like to do pre-recorded shows? And I promptly elected to do just that. Oh yeah, in case I need to clarify, uh, I am Douglas Everett. Anyway, while not necessarily adopting the doctor versus lawyer notion, we too did pay a visit to Access Sacramento, which produced local radio and television. More importantly, it also trained the citizenry on how to do radio and TV. We, and I mean Mr. Millen and I, enrolled in training with radio producer Shane Carpenter to learn the do's and don'ts of broadcasting. Within a few weeks, we got turned loose to produce two hours of programming every week. We then focused on how to pre-produce shows, which we could burn onto CDs rather than do live broadcast, which most people did. Compared to live broadcasting, Mr. McMillan could place much more meaningful content in the time we had allotted to us. So we began broadcasting locally, using pre-recorded discs. Access's broadcasts were low power, but they did reach a significant swath of the Sacramento metropolitan area. We still have the CDs of what we called reality radio. Chats got recorded with neighbors and friends to learn how to conduct a listenable interview. Listening to what you did was a real education. It helped us learn what worked best and what did not work so well. For example, Mr. Milan tried to branch off and do the mime hour but that did not pan out. But uh, we really did start dabbling with comedy bits. And I think we'd like to start here by playing one that dates back to the spring of 2000. Bothered by plants you don't like? It's time to get tough. You could denude or extirpate by hand, but why would you? Hoeing or cutting are a bother. You could buzz them with fishing line or reach for the common everyday herbicide. But when you get serious, reach for the defoliant developed for use by the US Navy in the conflict in Southeast Asia. Agent Orange in a can, the same full-strength compound that worked in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, is now available in distinctive Dayglow cans for domestic application. Fire department says I gotta clean out that lot again. Where's that orange can? Now I got time for Jerry Springer. I'd pull him up, but I'd rather go to the gym. I just flip the nozzle and let her rip. You too can utilize the same technology that took the rainforest canopy off the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Daddy, look at the flowers. Those are weeds, hon. Here you go. No dirty fingers, no muddy feet. Just point the pretty can. Why do you stoop labor like an illegal immigrant when you could be relaxing in front of the TV? Agent Orange in a can now comes in convenient grenade form. 
heave the handy injection molded canister at the rear fence and stand back. Within three weeks, ugly green stalks wither into ugly brown stalks. They may even decay before summer is over. Now you've got time for the mall, the tube, or the casino. Agent Orange in a can for the homeowner who hates to work. Anyway, at about this point in time, Bill Clinton was a lame duck. Here's a portion of our chat with the soon-to-be exiting president. Mr. President. Yeah, I'm here, Doug. How you well, doing? Thank tonight? you very much for coming on to Reality Radio. Well, you're welcome. You know, I got a lot more spare time on my hands now that I'm, you know, not really well, I, a I, lame duck, pretty much. So. Yeah. You know, I, I have time to go on shows like yours, and I, I appreciate you having me on. It's well, great. we're we're just delighted to have you. Well, what what are your plans for you know come January twentieth? Well, you know, I, I really am trying to plan, map this out, and uh, I have a couple of main options that I've narrowed it down to. I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do one of two things. First of all, I may just retire to a farm. I, I mean, I think that just like well, Jimmy Carter do you, did. Do you have a farming background? Well, no, but technically I don't. But, I mean, I certainly have watched hours and hours and hours of, of Green Acres, and, and, I, <laughs> and I just always loved that show. I mean, The Talking Pig and... You know, and you got uh, the Ava Gabor character. Oh, honey, you want some more hotcakes? You know, it was just all those sexual euphemisms going flying back and forth between those two. You know, are there, are there Oliver. Any, well, that's kind I of love a, that. That's an apt show, really, for you, a gentleman that wants to retire to the com- uh, country with a wife who prefers to be in New York. Well, you know, I you can't. It's perfect, isn't it? I mean, I really think so. I may my just goodness. do that. And my vision, though, is a little bit of a rewrite, I guess. I, I think that I would get myself a Filipino maid and. They'll have her give me back rubs or maybe walk on my back once in a while. You know, I mean, a man's got needs, Doug. I mean, well, come on, let's face it. I mean, Hillary's going to be it's over good to in, have in plans, New York sir. a lot of times. Yeah. You know, for a lot of time. And I need I need to be satisfied like any ex-president would, you know. Uh, by the way, Bill Clinton was really voiced actor Donald Rose, who has been with us ever since. We made some friends at Access Sacramento, including Alicia, who had many ideas about producing radio. She was a volunteer at Capital Public Radio and suggested after hearing a few months' worth of our efforts that there might be a niche for us over at Cap Radio. She suggested we record a short, pithy spot which she could take to news director Jeffrey Callison. Jeffrey was, I would note happily, a person who had also gotten some training at Access Sacramento. At Alicia's suggestions, we recorded three different lengths of musings on the DSM-4, an article about which had originally appeared in Smithsonian Magazine. Here's our short version. Today's topic, the Encyclopedia of Insanity. That's not its name. Its name is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 4th edition, better known as the dsm 4 The book is a catalog of all the mental disturbances known to man, at least as they were defined by the American Psychiatric Association in 1994. I saved a review of the book from Harper's Magazine, February 1997, because the review by L.J. Davis was just so bloody good. Per Davis, the DSM-IV has no beginning, middle, or end. But it does have a plot. Everyone's either nuts or going there. A central and unifying thesis, everyone's treatable. And it tells its tale with implacable simplicity. The American psychiatrist is given a billing code for every diagnosis described. For example, codes are provided for coffee nerves, inability to sleep after drinking too much coffee, and something that probably has to do with coffee, but the therapist can't quite figure it out. People who fancy they've been abducted by saucer men and taken aboard UFOs, however, are not given a code. The punchline? Coffee insomniacs are wacko. 
Abductees of Saucermen? Perfectly sane. Thanks, APA. Looking forward to the DSM-5. Now, Mr. Callison found this airworthy and thought if we could produce more like it, then a place might be found for us in morning edition broadcasts. So we worked to produce a wide variety of whimsical and serious pieces. Starting in 2001, we churned out about 70 such efforts, which were indeed aired as part of Morning Edition at Cap Radio. And we hope to make all those commentaries available soon on our website, radioparallax.com. Now, unfortunately, by the end of 2001, we lost our two-hour-a-week platform on access. Through internal politics, the production facility at the Coloma Center lost its link to transmit radio locally. It was still possible to stream shows, but the technology would max out at about 10 listeners. Thus ended reality radio. Before we parted ways, we're happy to note that the good people at Access did see fit to give us an award for continued quality programming. But by early 2002, our only broadcast outlet was via Cap Radio's use of our commentaries. But things would get better over the next year. One especially well-liked 2002 commentary got submitted to the Public Radio News Directors Organization by Mr. Callison. And the following year, that commentary, How to Deal with Telemarketers, went head-to-head with the output of other major market stations. And what do you know? We came out on top. Beating out the likes of Philadelphia's WHYY, New York City's WNYC, and San Francisco KQED, that was quite a thrill. And here it is. Telemarketers are like hungry mosquitoes. But while blood-sucking gnats can be fought with vile repellents and screen windows, your phone is harder to guard. But the best defense is a good offense. These clowns make money with a stick and move. If you hang up, boom! They're on to the next poor soul trying to unwind after work. Since time is money, what they fear is bogged-down conversation. So, lie. Like when I said, Yes, I'd love to discuss double-pane windows, but if we're disconnected, call right back. I then hung up, but he called back, and we repeated the process. Three times, till he got mad, and hung up on me. Once, I hogtied the satellite dish guy who interrupted my Super Bowl party. I told him, I'm interested, then laid the phone down. When his tinny, Hello? Hello? Came through the receiver, I'd add, Just a sec! Stringing him along for five minutes to a room full of stifled giggles. Try this. Hello? This is he. Why, I am concerned about estate planning needs. My wife and I were just discussing it. Hold on. Honey? An estate planner's on the phone. I'm glad you called. What? What do you mean, on fire? Could you hold a second, please? I'll be right back. Put the phone down, and he'll blow minutes, hoping you return. But you never do. Telemarketers present a fine opportunity to air out personal problems, or tell long, meaningless anecdotes. The idea is to waste their time, which, after all, costs them money. Don't get mad. Declare open season on these weasels. Turn loose that actor within you and indulge in some wicked fun. We do note some sadness appended to this tale. 
while an option to air the bit was obtained by Marketplace's founder, Jim Russell, for airing on that national program, a staffer for the show apparently decided eh, she didn't like it so much. Thanks to her lackadaisical efforts, we never reached Marketplace's national audience. Then again, she did the same thing to Annie Borowitz, so we were in good company at least. Mr. Millen suspects she was a former telemarketer. I'd note that her boss retained better comedy chops. We just sadly learned about Jim Russell's passing in 2022, but cannot help but mention that his obituary noted that among his health care directives, he included a request that flags across the nation be flown at half-mast. We owe a debt to Jeffrey Callison, whom we will say more about as we go along. He was generous with his assistance and even joined us on Parallax. And here's a moment we especially liked. Callison, a native of Scotland, commented on some local lore. Where did you grow up in Scotland? I was, I was actually born in the border region uh, between Scotland and England. And technically, I was born in a, in a hospital two miles across the border into England, which was um, a source of much hilarity at my school. <laughs> uh, I remember one time the kids in my class... They joined hands and danced around me in a circle and chanted, Englishman, Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> but I was actually raised in the city of Aberdeen, which is in the northeast coast. It's an oil city. And so it's uh, changed profoundly since I was a kid. And Aberdeen, where I was raised, is about maybe a two-hour drive from Loch Ness. I have in front of me the, the Times Atlas of the World. and looks like you're about as far as you can get from Loch Ness and be in Scotland. But that isn't very far. Yes, I only visited Loch Ness once. It was a family vacation, and we were up in those parts, and it was rather strange because we, we actually didn't talk about the monster, but it was, it was in the back of our minds the whole time. Uh-huh. And I remember my mother had this camera around her neck, and she never carried cameras with her. <laughs> and and we, we sort of played games with her, and we said, Mom, why, why do you have this camera? And she says... Oh, don't be silly. You know why. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we never saw the monster, Mm -hmm. and we didn't expect to see the monster. But you know what? It's one of these situations where you know that something's not true, but you'd hate to be caught out just in case you're wrong. And the the, the awfulness of having been at Loch Ness and seeing the monster and not recording it would have been terrible. But, of course, like just about everyone else, we went there, and Mm -hmm. uh, we did not conquer. As fortunate as we were to create commentaries that were beginning enjoyed, we felt that 90 seconds of airtime a few days a month did not take one very far. So we looked around for other venues with little success, frankly. Then we got informed by friend Richard Cox that KDVS in Davis made an interesting offer in their annual pledge drive. Donate $100 and one can host an hour of broadcasting on the station. By the way, this amazingly generous offer remains in place to this day, which is something one might consider when one thinks about offering his or her support to public radio. For the April 2002 pledge drive, we donated $100, requesting the host-to-show option as we did so. A few weeks later, a nice woman called us back. What program would you like to guest host for, she asked. Astounded that we would be given a choice, we pulled up the schedule grid and spied a public affairs program on Wednesday afternoons. Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. We reckoned a mix of humanities with tech might fit well with what we were doing, so we asked for a shot in Dr. Andy's show. We didn't want to usurp the entire hour, which he was loaning to us rather generously, so we recorded a mixture of pieces that would take up most, but not all, of the program. 
Dr. Andy not only welcomed our visit with warmth, he furthermore added his commentary between our bits. We think he especially liked the bit entitled Celebrity Poetry Reading. And, well, we're still fond of it. Here's an excerpt. We have Shakespeare's sonnet number 18, as interpreted by Christopher Walken. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? I think maybe I shall. Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Fellas, that is so good, but hard to say. Wow! And uh, we have to confess, we really did have some doubts about Sylvester Stallone doing Shelley's Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half sunk. A shattered visage lies. Hey, who the hell talks like this? Nobody I know. Jeez. Now, of course, lyrics of songs have to be considered poetry, and we have a few items in this area. Uh, Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, of course, that's a classic, and we have here a recording by Muhammad Ali. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bums a dime in your prime, didn't you? People call, say, beware, doll, you're about to fall. I know they fight me, they're going to fall, like when I said, more will hit the floor in four. Anyway, I can write poems better than this. Now you don't talk so loud, now you don't seem so proud. I am proud. Like I say, Ali got a left, Ali got a right, he hit you with one, you asleep for the night. Perhaps the most ill-advised reading of lyrics is one we found by Richard Nixon. Evidently, some aides got to him to try and reach out to the nation's youth, and so we have here Nixon doing Beatles lyrics, but we're not sure this was the best choice. I am he, as you are he, as you are me, and we are all together. See how they run like pigs from a gun? See how they fly? I am the Eggman. They are the Eggmen. I am the walrus. When we were finished, Dr. Andy marched us down the hall to suggest to the general manager, Paul Shramsky, that we should be given a public affairs program. Paul the GM thought this was a fine idea. Scheduling public affairs was a perennial problem for KDVS over the summer months. So it was that come July, we would be granted a spot in KDVS's public affairs lineup. Now, we've wanted from the very beginning to produce programming that would be informative, amusing whenever possible, trivial from time to time, but always interesting. We wanted to bring forth stories, even if they were being suppressed, especially if they were being suppressed, actually, and offer more accurate assessments than those promoted by interested parties, shall we say. Not being journalists by training, we elected to follow our Cary Grant theory of journalism. Cary Grant once said, and we're paraphrasing here, Everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Why, even I want to be Cary Grant. And eventually I became him, or he became me, or we met in the middle somewhere. We elected to try to become a kind of Cary Grantish radio program. Play at being journalists until we arrived there. We got off to a decent start. We reached out to the Sacramento News and Review, among others. After our first year, the SNNR called us the best local independent talk show. And once we got a show established, many book publishers found their way to suggest guests. We also obtained guests by tracking them down and asking them to appear on the show. An example of the former 
would include a chat with NPR's Bob Edwards about his book, Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism. Let's jump to a couple of bits from that. First, this. Um, You say that Murrow virtually invented broadcast journalism as we think of it today, yet he had no training as a journalist. What prompted a 29-year-old CBS executive to try and advance radio journalism as it existed in 1937? The war. He was in Europe as um, CBS's European director, and his job was not to be on the air, but to um, arrange broadcasts for CBS in New York from Europe. And specifically, uh, at one point, children's choirs. CBS wanted to hear children's choirs at a time when Europe was about to blow up. Murrow could see the war coming. He hired William L. Shirer, who was a veteran newspaper and wire service reporter, to help him out because he needed some journalism expertise on the staff. And um, then uh, Hitler annexed Austria in um, 1938. And uh, Murrow and Shirer found themselves on the air when neither of them was supposed to be. But uh, it was an emergency. They did a fantastic account of what was going on with uh, the annexation of Austria. And um, William Paley, the chairman of CBS, liked it so much, he ordered them to do another broadcast the next day and then the next day. And and the regular nightly newscast was born. Murrow was a smashing success on radio and pioneered much of what we uh, take for granted in radio journalism. He went on to television also and did well for a good while. But Bob Edwards explained what happened a bit later. CBS had had changed. It was now uh, television and radio. It uh, had many other kinds of properties, a movie studio, a record company, real estate holdings. It was a big conglomerate. And um, what Murrow was doing on television were these controversial, aggressive, investigative reports that upset people. It upset sponsors who didn't want controversy. They wanted frothy entertainment that right. would sell their products. Um, it upset the FCC and, um, and Congress. And Murrow was just literally bad for business. Besides, the, the, the programs didn't make money. They were ratings losers because right. they were news. Right. News the old-fashioned way, not news of today, which makes money because it's not really news. In your afterward, you say, I could quote you, that saying that uh, Paley was trying to make money, not save the world. Murrow yeah. believed CBS could do both. That's right. That's right. And believed they should. Yeah. So they had a falling out. And, and ultimately, um, Murrow was marginalized at, uh, at CBS, pushed to the sidelines, no longer hosting a program on a regular basis. He realized he was done and yeah. went into government. You note that Murrow's demise would have come even sooner had not CBS a commitment to public service in the 1950s. And the book you talk uh, rather passionately about the further downturn of TV news in the 1980s. Could you talk a bit about the decline of television over the last two decades? The, um, the news was done for public service, and um, it was uh, not, not to make money. Uh, along the way, the networks became owned and operated by Hollywood studios and big corporations who uh, feel everything should make money. Uh, Disney owns ABC and figures, well, you know, the theme parks make money. Uh, The news division ought to make money, too. So it does. And the way a news program competes with entertainment programs is to become an entertainment program. And that's why you 
have news looking like it is today with Brittany and Kobe. And, Infotainment. Yeah. And, um, you know, grisly murders that are just titillating. They don't make you a better person, a better citizen, or tell you anything you need to know to get through a day. And boy, does that last resonate with us still. The mass media has become infotainment. In the 19 years since we had that interview, we've seen reality shows dominate and even seen a reality show figurehead become U.S. president. One example of booking on our own involved our voice actor Don Rose bumping into Ambassador Joe Wilson at the L.A. Museum of Modern Art. Wilson's fight with the Bush administration led to the outing of his wife as a CIA agent working on nuclear proliferation. It had put Joe Wilson on page one. Asked if he would appear on a friend's radio show, Wilson wrote out his phone number. And what do you know? He did indeed speak with us. Twice, in fact. And here's a bit of appearance number two. Welcome back to Radio Parallax. It's great to be back with you guys. Uh, We remind our listeners that you were kind enough to speak to us in November, at which time you said you'd be happy to talk to us again as matters progressed in the coming months. And the months have passed, matters have progressed, and as a man of your word, here you are with us again. And not only that, but I have a feeling that I might be coming out there to be with you guys at some point. Well, we hope you will. We hope we can actually uh, meet you in the flesh. Look forward to it. Um, In your excellent book, which is now out, The Politics of Truth, you describe December 2003. You were with us in November. The next month, you describe that as the beginning of what you call Vindication Month, starting with the Washington Post report on those Bush State of the Union claims. Tell us about that. Well, I think the beginning in uh, whatever month it was that I started for Vindication Month, you had uh, you had the President, your Secretary of State, uh, and a number of other people beginning to acknowledge that, uh, gee, maybe things weren't quite as they as they suggested. I think actually I I begin the date by when uh, when the Special Counsel was um, was uh, was named, uh, because after all, at that point, it then becomes clear that the administration or that that they are forced to deal with this seriously, the leak of my wife's name. But more to the point, um, we get down to where um, where it's very clear that some of these things that have been trotted out to the American people uh, are just being demonstrated right and left not to be accurate. Weapons of mass destruction, you had uh, David Kay coming back and said we were all wrong. Uh, you had um, on the on the terrorism charge, you have you know, just absolutely no indication of operational ties to al-Qaeda and you have the president himself beginning to talk about um, about reasons for war that are not related to our own national security concerns. Well, they certainly have uh, moved away from that position. And of course, the position I took, and we discussed this last time I was on your show, from the very beginning, was that when a government um, makes the solemn decision in our name uh, to send uh, our sons and daughters off to kill and to die for us, we as a society have an obligation. We have an obligation to those people wearing our uniform. Uh, to ensure that we understand fully and agree as to why we're sending them out there, out there, out there to do this for us. Well, we'd recommend uh, your book, if for nothing else, the chapter you tell about when you were acting ambassador in Baghdad at the start of the, uh, the first Gulf conflict and how, all the, how important all these issues were to you and what was going on. And thank you. And, it, of course, it was that experience that brought me back into this debate after four years of retirement from public life. Uh, it was basically because I thought that I had some experience that was relevant to our understanding of what some of the unintended consequences might be of uh, of our invading, conquering, and occupying Iraq, and, and why that might not, in fact, be the best way to get at uh, uh, the issue that the president was then uh, describing for us, the threat of weapons of mass destruction. 
We thought it a great honor to be able to help Ambassador Wilson tell his story. He was indeed fully vindicated in his assertion that the public had been lied to by the administration, and he faced the retribution of Bush and Cheney with admirable courage. Joe Wilson was exactly the kind of guy we hoped to assist whenever possible. We've got to take a short break. Let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett, and in case you haven't been paying attention, this is Radio Parallax. It is? <laughs> 